Wouldn't it be great if people voted on positions on issues and not from emotions? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profit, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand, much too much of a role in this country, and without them knowing what it was doing. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig- dignity of man. In his Memorial Day speech at Arlington Cemetery, President Biden warned that U.S. democracy was itself in danger. The mission falls to each of us, he said, each and every day. Democracy itself is in peril here at home and around the world. And he added, what we do now, how we honor the memory of the fallen, will determine whether democracy will long endure. End of quote. And it is that serious. Biden's speech came at what is at least a break from the tumultuous four years of erratic and norm-shattering personality cult anti-democratic rule by Donald Trump, which culminated, of course, in the January 6th attack on the Capitol in Washington by a Trump-supporting mob seeking to disrupt and prevent the formalization of Biden's electoral win. They attacked democracy itself. Yet they imagined they were being patriots. Biden centered his speech on the ideals of a democracy that thrives when citizens can vote, when there's a free press, and when there are equal rights for all. Those treasured rights we have so long taken for granted are indeed under focused and direct attack as never before. This nation was built on an idea, Biden said in his address. We were built on an idea, the idea of liberty and opportunity for all. We've never fully realized that aspiration of our founders, but every generation has opened the door a little wider, end of quote. Now, because of rage arising from a culture of resentment, there is a concerted effort to close that door, to end the experiment in democracy. One indication of this is that Biden's Memorial Day address came as Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, simultaneously suggested that a Myanmar-like military coup, quote, should happen, end of quote, in the U.S. That coup and the Trump higher-ups support for it happening here is a perfect example of the seriousness of the threat. So how did we get here? What is this culture of resentment? Why is it so strong? Why does it remain so powerful after the Trump presidency? How did we get here? And what, if anything, can we do about it? Can American democracy survive? Whoever thought we'd be asking that question. A democratic republic flowered briefly in Germany after the devastation of the First World War, briefly until the their rageful culture of resentment brought Hitler and Nazism to power. Of course, 
Anytime Trumpism is mentioned on the same page as Hitler, many Americans bristle. But what is the substance of the comparison, the cultural similarities which caused the death of democracy in Germany? With us today is Professor of History Emeritus Walter Moss, who has written an essay on History News Network entitled Cultures of Resentment Among the Hitlerites and the Trumpers. Walter Moss, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's my pleasure. Walter Moss is Professor Emeritus of History at Eastern Michigan University. After two years as an Army officer, he attained his Ph.D. in Russian Area Studies and History from Georgetown University in 1968. He's the author of A History of Russia in two volumes, Russia in the Age of Alexander II, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, an age of progress, question mark, clashing 20th century global forces, and in the face of fear, on laughing all the way toward wisdom, hmm. and co-author of The 20th Century and Beyond, A Global History. He's contributing editor and frequent contributor to the History News Network and has contributed more than 400 essays and reviews to this and other websites and journals. And in his spare time, haha. Paraphrasing, again, thanks for being with us, Walter. Well, paraphrasing that old... Oldsmobile commercial, this is not your father's Republican Party. I worked for 14 years with genuine conservative Republican colleagues in the New Hampshire State Senate. They were pro-business for smaller government and fewer taxes and regulation. There was not the slightest question they respected and treasured democracy equally with my team, the Democrats. Today, this kind of Republican might be called a country club Republican by the pervasive culture of resentment. So let's begin by defining terms. What do you mean by resentment as it relates to culture and politics? Well, um, Martha Nussbaum uh, has uh, good uh, thoughts on this in terms uh, of an essay she wrote, Powerlessness in the Politics of Blame. And in there, she says, when people themselves uh, feel powerless, out of control of their own lives and fearful for themselves and their loved ones, it's all too easy to convert that sense of panic and impotence, impotence into blame and the othering of outsider groups, immigrants, racial minorities, women, with uh, statements like they've taken our jobs. Right. So uh, when I think of resentment, uh, I think of it as uh, someone feeling aggrieved because they've lost something that they think they have a right to. Mm. And I think uh, the, the ability of both Hitler and Trump was they understood that when people are frustrated and upset, that they want something or somebody to blame, some concrete group or individuals. Uh, you know, to tell people, uh, like a lot of the Trump supporters, well, you know, the reason you've lost your jobs, the reason you're not making as much money as uh, you once did, that the differences between your salaries and those of very wealthy people are because of these various factors. And then you mention a lot of abstract things like globalization, et cetera. That doesn't satisfy people. People, you know, like something concrete to pin their anger and blame on. 
And I use the example sometimes if uh, I'm working trying to fix a plumbing problem and uh, I hit my uh, thumb with a hammer or something, uh, my first reaction is to say to somebody near me, see what you made me do. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, especially when you consider that many of the Trump voters uh, were not college educated people. Right. Uh, the, 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 the attempt to follow some kind of abstract ideas or reasoning in terms of globalization, you know, as complex as that is, uh, that's, that's quite difficult. Whereas if you say it's the fault of fake news, it's the fault of people who never get their hands dirty, et cetera, et cetera, people can identify with that more. So I think that sort of thing uh, is at work here in terms of this culture of resentment. And with Hitler, you know, he was very good at this. Who's to blame the Jews, the foreigners who are imposing uh, various kinds of reparations, making us pay for the war, saying that it was our fault? Uh, he had, you know, one victim after another, mm. one uh, scapegoat after another that people could hate so that's where the resentment comes in i think yeah it's interesting that's a good description very clear and uh you know instead of something abstract it's so much easier to do the concrete and i have noticed for the past 50 years or so the right wing has tried to cut funding for public education and it's it's the heat seems to be turned up lately they don't want history to be taught they're very against teaching critical thinking which is amazing to me not only they not only don't value education as america used to they're actually it seems against teaching critical thinking skills and i, I wonder if holding on to an old resentment is easier and more acceptable than doing the more challenging work understanding an issue and trying to do something about it. Resentment is just more reactive, is it not? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think uh, the media, especially Fox News, but also the Internet in, in terms of Facebook, etc., it's made these oversimplifications uh, more prominent. Uh, the hard work of, of education uh, is not right. you know, not in vogue. <laughs> and I, I do find it fascinating. What you say here, quote, and this is from you, Walter Moss, President Trump was at his best, they say, when he ignored the experts and went his own way, end of quote. This, this is anti-elitism, the virulent anti-intellectualism Believing, see, this is what really gets me, believing deeply that being educated is not at all more valuable than ignorance. It seems these resentful Trumpists uh, embrace ignorance, that, yeah, it's okay, it's just as valuable. And, you know, Jefferson, I think it was, it was emphatic that democracy can only work with an educated populace. 
Talk about this phenomenon, please, and the potential for lasting damage when it comes to, you know, being against education and against intellectualism and against critical thinking. What about the potential for lasting damage? Yeah, I I agree with you completely. Um, I wrote an, an article for the uh, L.A. Progressive saying that I thought education should free us or for should help us overcome racism and Trumpism. And uh, I, I strongly believe in that. Uh, you mentioned anti-intellectualism. The historian Richard Hofstetter wrote a book a half century ago about anti-intellectualism in America. And uh, the, the people that we value generally are not intellectuals. Right. You think, well, I think because I'm old enough of the anti-intellectualism against Adlai Stevenson, for example. Uh-huh, right. He was, he was considered an egghead. I was, yes, I remember that. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned in what you sent me that you had a daughter that was at school in Pennsylvania. Yes. Mentioned, you mentioned some of your own experiences. Well, I grew up in a blue-collar family uh, in the Midwest, and uh, I was the first one in my family to complete a college education. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a culture where uh, expressions like, uh, he never got his hands dirty, uh, were quite common. Mm -hmm. And I think I understand fairly well the, the kind of resentment about against people who don't get their hands dirty. Uh, one member of my family would say to me from time to time, I understand you're a professor now uh -huh. with, with a certain contempt <laughs> for professors. Uh, and our heroes are people like Thomas Edison, you know, practical people. Uh, much less respect for intellectuals, uh, for people who place a lot of emphasis on knowledge. And I look at this in the media, you know, and when I was growing up, there was still quite a bit of respect for good journalists, uh, people like Walter Cronkite, for oh, yeah. example. Mm -hmm. Uh, and now it's people like Bill O'Reilly, yeah. uh, you know, and some of the talking heads and uh, Fox News. And there just isn't that respect for a uh, uh, measured, tempered view of reality. <laughs> and uh, what you're saying is, is so true. And uh, it's interesting to me how, you know, being this show is coming from New Hampshire, where we, you know, if you don't meet, every presidential candidate, you got to be hiding under a rock. So it's very political here. And people didn't, they didn't care about, you know, it didn't matter if somebody was, was smarter. It used to be when we were growing up, you know, of course you want your president to be smarter than I am. Hello, of course you do. But these, a lot of these people felt like, and what got me is that well, the guy has a lot of money. We're talking about the orange one who used to be president. He has a lot of money. How can you not respect that? That's what counts. You know, he's he must be smart. He must be smart. He must be valuable because he has a lot of money. As it turns out, I think he greatly exaggerated his money. 
But that that's an interesting phenomenon that uh, having money, you know, you don't have to uh, have an education and you, you can be respected and a hero and think, yes, like Thomas Edison, who wasn't a particularly nice guy and had a lot of ethical issues, I believe, uh, but he's, he's sort of a hero. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a real threat to democracy, and that's the culture of resentment uh, among the Hillarites and Trumpers, which was the title of an article written by our guest, Professor of History Emeritus Walter Moss. Um, and it, you mentioned, you know, that I mentioned my, my daughter is at college in South Central Pennsylvania, and I visited, before the pandemic, solid Trump country. I was trying to figure out why. My guess was that people there were for many years and generations working hard, getting dirt under their nails, <laughs> playing by the rules, and not getting ahead. So what kind of new example was Trump? In what ways did his candidacy uniquely fire their enthusiasm, do you think? Well, uh, the, the fact that uh, Trump identified concrete objects for us to blame, you know, like fake news, the immigrants, you know, the that immigrants. Famous, right. famous speech where he said some are rapists, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, right. So if you compare him to someone like Romney, uh, who was the presidential candidate in 212, yeah. uh, Trump, was was much more unconventional, much more the kind of person that would furnish targets of hate uh, than somebody like uh, Romney was. And there was a very interesting analysis uh, by Nate Silver of the New York Times uh -huh. of the difference in voters between 212 and 216, uh, especially in some of the key states. And what he did, did was analyze a lot of the counties that uh, had voted for Obama, but then uh, switched and voted for Trump in right. 2016. Right. And what he found was there was a direct correlation to educational level, mm. uh, that that seemed to be the most important factor, more so than how much money people made. Uh, and the other thing was how predominant uh, the swing was in some of the Midwestern states. And even though Pennsylvania, where your daughter is, is not a Midwestern state, it is part of what's called the Rust Belt. Yes. And in those areas, in areas like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin, uh, unionization uh, dropped really sharply yeah. during the period. Um, and uh, the, the good paying jobs that were available for blue collar workers, say in the 60s and 70s, a lot of them disappeared. And as I say, to blame it on things like globalization, that's too abstract for a lot of people. Whereas Trump, by targeting the immigrants, uh, you sure. know, other individuals, just like Hitler targeted the Jews uh, and foreigners and communists. Uh, so I think that was a good part of Trump's success. And, and I get the sense that the fact that Trump 
hasn't played by the rules. The, tr- the fact that Trump says, yeah, I haven't paid my fair taxes, but so what? That makes me smart. People, that, yeah. people identify with that somehow, and they think, wow, that's cool. That's a hero. He's not, because where does playing by the rules get you? It gets you nowhere, you know? I, I, I can see that. And and you, you say, uh, you read the mood and what's been called the bitter heartland. I think that's an interesting title. You say, the more I read of it, the more the great resentments of Hitler's followers come to mind. And, and you know, economic despair was widespread in Germany during and after the First World War, and it turned out to be impossible to keep the brief Weimar Republic, and that the draw of extremes in extreme times huh, was powerful. There was real hopelessness. Perhaps in the 21st century, America expert uh, expectations were a lot higher and the lack of visible benefits from the political and cultural status quo is particularly powerful in these less densely populated areas they weren't getting the uh, the goods they weren't being helped as you say the rust belt what what factors led to that widespread feeling in germany was it slower quick here in the heartland and in germany if you could please well in Germany, uh, after World War One, uh, the, the the targets, the resentments were uh, rich Jews, and a lot of the Jews were thought to be richer than than they were. It's true there were many wealthy Jews uh, in banking, for example, but a lot of the Jews were not wealthy. Another big target was the Victoria, the victorious uh, Allies who imposed the Versailles Treaty upon Germany. It took away some of their land. It made them pay reparations. And when the 1923 Great Inflation hit Germany, you know, the fact that they were paying reparations was part of the money problem as far as a lot of Germans saw it. That that inflation, by the way, was almost impossible oh, yeah. for us to, to, to imagine. Right. I mean, people, it would not be unusual to pay a billion marks for a meal. Right. People took baskets full of money to buy a loaf of bread. I mean, it was just completely out of whack. But that, that... And, then, and then later in late 1929, the Depression began to hit. Yeah. And we can see a direct correlation uh, between the growth of the Nazi Party uh, after the Depression hit and pop and Hitler's popularity. Uh, to give you an example here, in the 1928 uh, election, so this was before the Great Depression, the Nazi Party won only about three percent right. of the total vote in the Reichstag. But by 1930, when the onset of the Great Depression had become clear in Germany, the Nazis gained 18% of the vote, so increasing more than fivefold their percentage. And they became the second largest party in the German, uh, the main German legislative body. So economic grievances were certainly a big part of the German resentment. Then they resented the civilian German politicians right. who had signed the Treaty of Versailles. Oh, yeah. the, the great resentment of communists 
And, you know, it's interesting if you look at uh, the development of fascism in Europe between the wars, starting with Mussolini, but then also later with Hitler, fear of communism uh, was real and palpable and was a big part of the explanation for the success of the right wing, you know, playing on the fears of the left, of the extreme left, the communist. And by the way, just as an aside, uh, in the article that you mentioned on the History News Network, uh, I mentioned Hitler and the Nazis and the culture of resentment. But you can also see it in, in the whole communist uh, resentment against who, the group they label the bourgeoisie or, you know, the whole class resentment. Uh-huh. And you see plenty of examples of that in the Russian Civil War uh, between 1918, late 1920, where uh, people that looked like they could be part of the bourgeoisie uh, would be killed yes. uh, just just because of the class that they represented. And uh, Lenin played greatly upon this uh, hatred yes. of the upper class, you know, including the bourgeoisie. And so it isn't just limited to Hitler and the right. Uh, that hatred can also come from the far left. And I get the sense, you know, they were not... The, the, the economic conditions in the Midwest, the, the bitter heartland, have not been anywhere nearly as bad as they were, you know, in uh, between the wars, Germany. So, it, but I, I get the sense that they, they probably viewed national politics as of the coasts, of the elites, the educated on the coasts, and that they were ignored. I mean, in fact, they were called flyover states. And I, I, I know I'm in a minority that believes it wasn't so much that Trump won in 2016, but that Hillary Clinton lost. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And what are some of the ways in which she not only failed to connect with the people in the bitter heartland, but actually fired up support for Trump, who was not the choice of the establishment Republican Party? What about that, do you think? Well, I think her remark uh, that she made about the deplorables yeah. <laughs> uh, was was very indicative of that. And kind of an interesting fact about that, she made that remark, and this was in September of 2016 during the campaign. Right. She made that remark speaking at an LGBT campaign fundraising event. Oh, my. And uh, right there, you know, when you mention LGBT, uh -huh. a, a great deal of the resentment, I think, of a lot of the Trump supporters is to uh, various minorities, including gays and lesbians, and the feeling that our society is too politically correct uh -huh. in terms of dealing with them. I can remember talking to a Trump supporter who was very upset by he had read at some college that uh, somebody that was bisexual didn't want to be referred to as he and that they were starting some bisexuals were starting to say they preferred they. 
And this person, you know, was just so upset by this. You know, if you're born a guy, you're a guy, damn it. You know, that sort of thing. Right. And so the fact that Hillary was speaking at a campaign fundraising event of LGBT in the eyes of a lot of Trump supporter was just reflective of her problem that uh, she was too much and the Democrats in general are too much in league with all the various minorities, you know, whether it's gender minorities, whether it's feminists, whether it's blacks, whether it's immigrants, they're too much in league with them. Whereas Trump, damn it, supports us white guys. Boy, that really, that, that's, that says it. And, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, this country was supposed to be for, you know, white, male, heterosexual, Protestant uh, people. And, that you know, this is ours. And I, I think there's a big threat to that. And, you know, resentment uh, kind of goes hand in hand with jealousy, perhaps. And it's interesting. I wonder how I, we may be in sort of a, a blip of a period here because, it, I mean, let's face it, President Biden and the Democratic Party is, in fact, being very openly supportive of these minorities, feminists, LGBTQ, uh, and, uh, you know, people of color, immigrants. So that I can imagine it's going to fuel their fire even more. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I like to be optimistic. I really do. And I think Biden's doing a terrific job. But it's a little bit, it hasn't gone away, this resentment. In fact, maybe worse. I don't know. And to have an election uh, based on resentment rather than, you know, a person's actual stand on the issues is a little bit disquieting. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we are talking about real serious threats to democracy. Uh, and our guest today is a uh, history professor, uh, Walter Moss, who's written an essay on History News Network, which I highly recommend, called Cultures of Resentment Among the Hitlerites and Trumpers. And speaking of Hitlerites and Trumpers, in the 1920s, Germany, and in Trump's 2020, in terms of fueling the fires of resentment, the month of November looms large. Tell us about that, please. Well, uh, in terms of November, of course, that's the month of our elections uh, to the presidency. And in Germany, it uh, would be significant because uh, that's the month, as we know from celebrating Armistice Day, right. that uh, World War I ended. And uh, the Germans, uh, Hitler uh, furthered the idea that the Germans surrendered, but they didn't really have to because the Allies were not on German soil when Germany, right. you know, it, it wasn't like World War II, right. uh, where they were coming from both sides into Germany. Yeah, and they made it to uh, Berlin. Yeah. And so the, uh, Hitler came up with this idea of the stab in the back, right. that the civilian politicians that took over for the Kaiser, who resigned his position, uh, that the civilian population, uh, the civilian politicians really stabbed Germany in the back. And they were blamed for agreeing to the Treaty of Versailles. In reality, uh, the 
the, the superiority of the Allied powers by November 1918 and the dire position of Germany uh, made it inevitable that things would just get a lot worse if the war continued. Yeah. So the civilian populate the civilian politicians in Germany that agreed to the armistice and then eventually to the Treaty of Versailles, they didn't have a great deal of choice, really. No. Uh, so November was important in that respect in Germany. Uh, and then, of course, it was November of 1923 that Hitler uh, attempted what sometimes is called his beer hall, beer hall putsch right. or takeover in uh, the city of Munich. And uh, it wasn't very well thought out or uh, yeah. uh, it didn't get very far. By that time, the German politician Gustav Stresemann had come to power, and he was quite capable. And uh, national forces put down uh, the rebellion, and Hitler was imprisoned uh, for a little less than a year. But in that period, oh, yeah. he, he did write Mein Kampf, which my testament or testimony, and he, he spells out a lot of his racist ideas. And uh, so, you know, his program, when he came to power uh, a decade later in 1933, shouldn't have been a surprise. But there is a parallel there with Trump in the sense that a lot of the more seasoned German politicians in 1933 thought that Hitler would moderate his behavior <laughs> once he came into power. <laughs> Yeah, they thought they could keep him under control. Right. And a lot of that thinking was going on with Trump, mm -hmm. you know, uh, despite a lot of his uh, excessive rhetoric during the campaign. A lot of the old school Republicans thought, well, once he comes into power, you know, uh, we'll we'll tame him down a bit and control him. And of course, that was a big mistake, just as it was with Hitler. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, there's been so many cases of that where some powerful group thinks they can control a politician, and then he, it's not always a he, uh, gets on top of them. And But, you know, Bert, yeah, uh, go ahead. You, you bring up an interesting point, and, and I should mention it as a historian. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of people bristle at any comparison of Trump and Hitler. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I can understand that. And we do have to be careful always with comparisons because no two situations are exactly alike. And there are also a lot of differences between the United States now and Germany in the 1920s or early 30s. And one of them that I take some comfort for, from is we have a much longer democratic tradition in the United States than Germany. Yes, that's a good and, point. Uh, you know, we've got that to fall back on. And as with uh, Biden, we can appeal to people like Lincoln and Washington. And uh, we have that long history. Uh, so um, and we've and we've got heroes. You know, I remember in the 1960s, I never thought there would ever be a Martin Luther King Day to celebrate. Right. Uh, but a number of people eventually came around, uh, even Republicans, 
to recognize that Martin Luther King was a valuable American and had a lot of valuable things to say. So I, I am somewhat more optimistic than I would be if I were in Germany in the 1940s. No. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have much of a democratic uh, process. And I must say, I mean, you know, Hollywood reflects uh, they're going to do things that make them money. And they wouldn't produce things if it didn't make them money. So there's uh, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, all these uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and all these other films that are making money. That shows that uh, not everybody is in line with that. And uh, you know the fact that uh, uh, President Biden went out to Tulsa, Oklahoma. No president has ever. I mean that that whole you know massacre on June first, nineteen twenty was erased, just completely covered up. We are looking at that now. So that's there's there's a lot to be optimistic about. Although, again, I, I worry that this could be sort of an interregnum period uh, between, because the Trumpists are not going away. Um, and you, following up on what you said, on top of the feeling left out of the economy and feeling like, well, I'm working hard, I'm not making it. Trump didn't work hard. He's a cheat and a liar, and good for him. He makes it. He gets away with it. But many people who would end up being Trump supporters and, and many who remain blindly dedicated still are, as writer George Saunders noted, highly sensitive to, quote, any infringement whatsoever on their freedom. Uh, many suffered from what Saunders labeled usurpation anxiety syndrome. What is that? Of course, I think of the resistance to masks and vaccinations. What is this usurpation anxiety syndrome of which he spoke? Well, he said that uh, he, now this was an article he wrote in 216 during the uh, campaign at that time. And uh, he thought that a lot of uh, the Trump supporters were afraid that uh, they were losing power to, um, to various others, he defined it as the feeling that one is or is about to be scooped, overrun, or taken advantage of by some other with questionable intentions. Uh -huh. Now, this, this some other could be immigrants, they could be, uh, you know, leftist uh but but various people that were really threatening, and you mentioned it before, the idea of uh, male white dominance. Yeah. Uh, Ross Douthat, a conservative columnist that writes for the New York Times, had an article that I thought was was quite interesting. He was talking about the Trump supporters, and he said a lot of them, you know, grew up with the idea of the heroes in history were people like Davy Crockett. Right. And uh, the, the, they believed in uh, that this was a Christian country or a yes. Christian country. And they believed in white superiority, et cetera. Um, and, you know, mentioning Ross Douthat, one of the things I find interesting is that among the conservative thinkers, uh, and I'm thinking of people like David Brooks and Ross Douthat, um, and uh, there are others, uh, writers for the Washington Post, and I've 
written several articles on this. Almost all of them were anti-Trump. Yes. Uh, and you don't, it's really hard. George Wells, another one. Oh, yeah. It's really hard to find uh, a conservative intellectual or someone would I that I would label that that supported Trump. Of course not. You know, and they might have a lot of ideas that still differ from progressive ideas. Sure. In terms of big government, for example. Absolutely. Uh, but but they all agree that that Trump is is just terrible as a or was as a president. And yeah, he does. I mean, as I said, I was I was a state senator for fourteen years and worked with a lot of Republicans, and. They were never like that. Not, I mean, not at all. Just as, as you say, the the traditional, you know, Republican, uh, pro small business and all anti tax, but not this bizarre, angry, resentful stuff. And social scientists are able to measure change, which I think is is really interesting, and it's good that they can do that scientifically. Such measurements only follow the change itself. The essay that you cite, The Bitter Heartland, refers to a poll, this is interesting, in 2016, that indicated that 65% of whites without college degrees, quote, believed that America's culture and way of life had changed for the worse since the 1950s, end of your quote. My sense is that behind a great deal of the resentment, that's behind a lot of the resentment, the belief that, as you say, America rightfully belongs to and is controlled by white conservative Protestant men, one can trace it. Back to the 50s, I do remember when rock and roll scared them because it brought the image of white girls dancing with black boys. Now there's gay marriage, transgender rights, Trump's manipulation of fear of an invasion by dark-skinned people from Central America. So how does this form of resentment manifest itself? You, you see it in, in various ways. Uh, if we look at the last year, for example... And the reaction to the coronavirus and how it was handled by Trump and how it's handled by Biden and the demonstrations in some of the states. The idea that uh, there's this this great emphasis on the government trying to take my freedoms away. Yes. By making me wear a mask, for example. Uh, so we see the resentment in that way. Um we see the resentment in terms of this belief, and I see a majority of Republicans still believe that Trump was cheated out of the election. Right. I mean, it is really amazing in a lot of ways to think that such a large percentage of people still believe that, you know, despite all the evidence to the contrary. So uh, when you say there's still a lot of Trumpians around, uh, I think you're right. You look at the fear of Republican politicians to yeah. anger the base. Uh, and, you know, it, it seems shameful to a lot of progressives or a lot of Democrats that so many of the Republican congressmen would be so craven in terms of their their actions, you know, and fail to stand up for the truth. And when somebody like Liz Cheney, who is uh, about as conservative as you can get in Absolutely. a lot of ways, yes, when she becomes almost a hero to <laughs> the anti-Trump people, 
you know, it really says something about this, the state of those who continue to support Trump and believe uh, all of the lies that he's manufactured. Yeah, it's so much easier. It's so much easier. Um, and since the late 60s, where a lot of Americans, you know, we were out on the streets protesting for civil rights and against the war in Vietnam, and it made a difference. It absolutely made a difference. Since then, people have come to accept powerlessness. People, be- I can't, it amazes me how people feel like, oh, there's nothing we can do. We are powerless, which is so clearly not true. But I wonder how the tr- appearance of Trump on the scene helped overcome this feeling of powerlessness that was intentionally uh, uh, given to us, laid down on us. How did he overcome, help overcome the feeling of powerlessness? And I guess that probably was the case more in the uh, the bitter heartland. Well, you know, again, I get back to the idea that he presented uh, convenient scapegoats, uh, targets that the average person person could understand. You know, people point out that uh, a lot of people that had it economically tough, et cetera, a lot of people uh, that didn't go to college, uh, they supported Trump, who was a millionaire, a billionaire, and the wide difference between Trump and all of his excess luxuries, et cetera, and their hard life in a rural area. But on the other hand, when you think about it, Trump is not very well educated. Uh, You know, some people say that they doubt whether he ever read a book cover to cover. Right. Um, And he's he's just the opposite of an intellectual. And given the anti-intellectualism in the country, you know, people can kind of identify with it. Absolutely. You know, you know, I remember in the election between uh, George Bush, uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore, somebody told me one time that, uh, yeah, you know, they agreed with Gore more. This was a Democrat. But they agreed with Gore more, but he was too stiff to, right. you know, sort of an intellectual wonky where George W. was the kind of guy you'd like to have a beer with. Absolutely. Well, you know, for me, that's no reason to vote for a guy for president because I'd want to have a beer with him. And it's the same way with Trump. Uh, a lot of uh, people that are not very well educated can identify with Trump because he talks like a non-educated person. You know, his reactions were like their a lot of their reactions. And I, I don't mean to to demean or uh, you know look down upon many Trump supporters. I disagree strongly with a lot of their ideas, but some of them I know personally are very good, kind people in a lot of other ways. Oh yeah. And uh, you know I don't want to see us get in a position here where the left becomes as intolerant as the right has become. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and it's about respect, for example. And as you say, you know, a lot of the people who support Trump are, are impressed that he's probably never read a book cover to cover. They like that. They hold that up as something 
positive that they can identify with. He's not like those uh, pointy-headed uh, Adlai Stevenson intellectual types. He's he's one of them. And yeah. it's, again, I would like somebody who's smarter than I am to be president. Yeah, right. You know, really. Uh, <laughs> but it, they don't. I, and it, it does get me that, you know, here in New Hampshire, again, where we're coming from, our governor not a particularly good governor, but he's a nice guy. He has a great smile. And if you don't have a good smile, when I was one running for re-election one year at a factory gate, a woman came out and, and looked me over and said, I like your smile. I'll vote for you. I'm thinking, <laughs> Jesus, you know, it's, I, I don't know how we can, we can change that. And that's where we want to definitely get to that before the end of this discussion. Resentment. You say, those who experience disrespect want more than redress. They want revenge. What January sixth? What, what was that? What was that? What part did resentment play on January sixth? Do you think? I mean, that was a big event in history. Yeah. Um, well, you know, if you look at some of the pictures uh, and you see some of the violent activity, uh, the resentment I think shines through pretty clearly. Uh, there, there was an awful lot of anger displayed on January 6th and, uh, partly because they bought into the big lie that Trump should have been elected. Um, and you know, and when I was younger, I used to believe that, uh, and I think it's a bias that we have that are in intellectual professions that uh, people should be reasonable and, you know, would be reasonable. But it simply is not the case that reason or logic is what motivates most people. Yeah. Uh, I think what we want more than anything else, most of us, is to have our biases confirmed. And uh, so, you know, people will be, believe the big lie or they'll believe that global warming is not true if that's what they want to believe. And you can crowd out all the scientific evidence you want, yeah. and it won't do any good. You know, I remember talking to people about global warming and saying 90-some percent of the world scientists, you know, think that it's man-made, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, someone might say, yeah, but there are some scientists that don't accept that. And you can always find on the yeah. internet somebody that's going to say the Holocaust didn't exist right. or the global warming isn't real. And if you don't want to believe, you know, what science seems to tell you or the facts seem to tell you, you can always find somebody that's going to say something and you'll point to that. And it's it's so much easier. Myth is so much more comforting than, you know, than, than disquieting history. And, you know, I want to look at what we can do now. The Democratic Party, I don't think there's any question, did in 2016 and probably still does often come across as elitist and fuels resentment. And populism arises from such resentment. In history, there's been populism of the left and right. The Midwest used to be strong for left populism. I had high hopes for Bernie Sanders. From my own non-scientific research in 2016, I found many people were between Bernie Sanders and Trump. They couldn't stand elitist, entitled Hillary. 
And the National Democratic Party today seems very nervous about wading into populist talk. As a result, I worry they could be, by reinforcing the elitist uh, you know, sense and picture, they could be making prospects for 2022 worse for the party. Your thoughts? Well, uh, you know, I know what you mean. In terms of populism, I'm a little wary of encouraging any kind of class hatred or class warfare. Uh, now, some of the populist rhetoric, if we go back, uh, is aimed at the rich. And, oh, yes. No question. And there's, there's no doubt that some wealthy people uh, support Trump, but some don't. Right. And so it, it isn't, and, and I don't think we get anywhere by uh, encouraging hatred or envy, sure. whether of the rich or the poor. Uh, and I, I don't want to see us move towards any kind of a dogmatic approach. I'm happy that Biden has been as progressive as he has been oh, yeah. in regard to things like climate change. Uh, I think in terms of the future uh, that nothing is going to change dramatically. But the polls are showing uh, some support for Biden, uh, more support, uh, for example, than Trump received. And I think slowly, very slowly, he's going to start to win over some of the people that supported Trump. Uh, but it isn't going to happen right away. No. And, I, you know, I, I think Fox News, for example, has a great deal to atone for yeah. <laughs> if there's a heaven or hell. Because and the Republican politicians who are caving in to, you know, their fear of being out primary. Uh, but they're going to continue to encourage uh, resentment against anything that Biden does. Yeah. You look at some of his programs, they, a lot of them are targeted to help, uh, poor people, yep. small yep. towns and stuff. Yep. And so I'm hopeful if, if we keep, you know, pressing ahead with emphasizing the importance of truth and facts and we show respect uh -huh. to Trump supporters, you know, yes. we don't demean them. Hillary, Hillary herself admitted that her comment about deplorables was deplorable. She yeah. couldn't have said it. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, uh, I'm, you I'm, know, I'm, I'm encouraged. I received a, uh email one time after I had written an article by from Lester Levine. And Lester organized a group called Common Good. And there's a website, commongood.org. Uh, and what he's tried to do is support more dialogue, yeah. uh, you know, between uh, Republicans and Democrats and trying to find what we have in common. Well, and I've written a couple of just one more. Sure, thing. sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've written a number of articles uh, about Pope Francis. I admire quite a bit his yes. critique of capitalism, his encyclical dealing with climate change. But he addressed the U.S. Congress a number of years ago. 
And he emphasized over and over again the importance of dialogue. And uh, I'm really big on tolerance, dialogue, compromise. Yeah. I think progressives have to hold firm to their beliefs. You know, I don't think we can compromise on things like racial injustice. Uh, but how to achieve those, those goals, those things that we consider important uh, we should be flexible. We should be pragmatic. And we should listen to the other side. And I think respect is a big part of that. We have to, you know, looking down your nose at the uh, Trump supporters feeds them. I mean, it's just the worst possible thing to do. Uh, they have some legitimate concerns and come about with resentment. So if perhaps, perhaps we can try to figure out what, you know, some of the legitimacy of those resentments and absorb some of that energy to move the country in a progressive direction. I do think uh, that's possible. We have to respect and listen to that. Um, I suspect you ag- agree, and obviously you do. Well, this, this has been uh, very interesting and I think uh, explains a lot. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Professor of History Emeritus Walter Moss, his article is called Cultures of Resentment Among Hitlerites and Trumpers, and he writes often for History News Network. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Bert. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. The pleasure's mine. Thanks.